Morning, everyone. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that uh, you are our Father, that we know you have our best interests at heart if we trust and follow the Lord Jesus. We thank you uh, so much, Lord, that you're in control of all things and so we can uh, rest in you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for sending your son Jesus and we long for him to be um, believed in all over the world and we do pray that what's going on in our country and around the world at the moment would uh, cause that to happen, that so many be saved. And Father, the Lord Jesus, our King, please, please help us this morning to hear his words, to listen to him um, on deep and personal topics and uh, to heed what he has to say. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, have a bit of a think with me about our society for the moment and think about um, who or what do you think is the king of our society? Who rules? Uh, who sits on the throne? Um, I think I'd have to say that one of the major rules, if not the supreme ruler, is happiness our happiness. See, how is a society and people within society, how do we make decisions? How do we determine what's good? How do we determine how to shape our lives, shape our relationships? What drives, what motivates? I think happiness is king, really, or at least a king. Now, the big question people keep asking themselves, I think, is does it make me happy? That seems to be the driving, motivating, decision-making criteria. Now, it's obviously not all people, all the time, in all circumstances, but I think there is a strong push and emphasis in this direction. And even in my lifetime, I think that emphasis has, has grown and strengthened, don't you? Uh, concepts like sacrifice, duty, service, commitment, faithfulness, things that involve depriving yourself for doing what's right or depriving yourself for the good of others are so at odds with seeking my own happiness that while these things might be nice in theory, they're more and more absent in practice. Now, I think this is evident in all sorts of spheres of society and life, but nowhere is it more evident than in the realm of relationships and sex. How do people make decisions about who to have sex with? How do people make decisions about who to marry? How do people make decisions about whether to marry? How do people get into a situation where they're having sex with someone in addition to the person they're married to? How do people determine to leave one marriage partner, their spouse, because they no longer feel in love with them and then marry someone else other than their spouse who they now feel in love with? I think a key and driving factor behind all these sort of things and decisions and motivations is, is having happiness as supreme, happiness as king in their life. I want to be happy and sex with that person will make me happy and so I will pursue sex with that person regardless of the consequences to them, to others. I want to be happy. My marriage partner is not making me happy but that person will make me happy and so I'll leave my marriage partner and pursue this partner, divorce them and remarry. I want to be happy. Being single is not making me happy. And so I'll marry whoever I can in order to fulfill my needs and make me happy. And I think there is nothing more foul and despicable in the eyes of our society than the person who might suggest that in the realm of relationships and sex, we are in any way to deny ourselves happiness for what's right or for the good of others. People find any hint of a suggestion that we should restrict ourselves in the realm of sex and relationships to be obscene, to be deeply offensive because our supreme value is happiness. Don't you dare say anything about how I conduct my relationships. Don't you dare say anything about how I conduct my sex life. In our society, society I think happiness is king, or at very least one of the key kings. 
But in reality, there's another king, the true and rightful king, the king who rules this universe and who is so good and so righteous and so just that he is a wonderful king to follow. And this glorious king is the Lord Jesus. We saw a number of chapters ago, back in chapter 17, that this king's kingly glory burst forth. Do you remember the transfiguration, chapter 17, Jesus on the mountain? His glory is veiled as he walks around on his planet. But for that moment, his glory bursts forth and he is transfigured. It shines through. And God speaks from heaven and says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is God's glorious son, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, walking on this planet amongst human beings. And God says, listen to him. Listen to him. Obey the word of this glorious king, the son of God. And following the transfiguration, what we've seen through these chapters is there a whole section of this king teaching telling us what it will be like if you want to live as a subject of his kingdom. And he expects his words to be obeyed. They're good words. They're wise words. They're words for our benefit. But they're words that he expects to be obeyed. For he's the king, the good and wonderful king. And if you want to be a subject in his kingdom, then you need to obey the king. Now the instructions that we come to today are part of that section. Instructions about marriage, singleness, divorce, sex part of the king's good instruction to us and so today we have a choice will we follow the king of society happiness the price tag is high let me tell you or will we follow the true king of the universe the glorious king the lord jesus christ whose way is so wonderful and good and particularly today in this area of relationships and sex because the king has profound and challenging things to say to us and to us as a society now can i acknowledge These are, of course, deeply personal subjects. They're at the very core of how we feel and experience life day by day, but often over a long period of time, often over a whole lifetime. And for many of us, these issues are issues of pain, perhaps around singleness, perhaps around divorce. For for, for some, talking about these subjects is like sticking your finger into an open wound. So this is a hard passage to preach on. It's so personal. And it can be so painful for us. Jess said a couple of weeks ago, who wants to be the preacher who preaches on humility? Too true, too true. I'm sitting there thinking, who wants to be the preacher who preaches on marriage, divorce and becoming a eunuch? (laughs) So, But here we are. So there might be some hard things going on this morning, but I, I trust we all embark together to hear the better way that our king has for us. His thoughts are revolutionary. And not just for this area of our lives, but for life in general, a whole different way of seeing the world than the way our society does. So firstly, our glorious king speaks about marriage, sex and divorce. The passage begins with the opponents of Jesus, the Pharisees coming along to Jesus and they've got a question about divorce. You can see from verse 1, Jesus left Galilee and he heads into the region of Judea. This is because he is heading towards Jerusalem where he has said he is going to suffer, be rejected and executed for our salvation. And only after that to rise from the dead. At this point large crowds are following him, he's healing lots of people, he's very popular. It's going to come a time when his popularity is totally dried up and he hangs naked, humiliated, in shame and alone upon the cross. But now 
His, his popularity is, is full. There's people everywhere. They're coming. They're enjoying his healings. And this threatens the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. So, verse 3, the Pharisees came to test him. The Pharisees, these Jewish religious leaders, were highly respected in their day, which is a funny thing to us, isn't it? We don't, as a society, respect religious leaders. But they were highly respected for their, their religious law-keeping. They come to test Jesus because they're threatened by him. He's gaining popularity, stealing away from them. He's saying things that actually undermine the very things that they've been teaching, contradict. He's claiming and acting in a way that seems to say that he is, has a unique relationship with God. All these things riled the Pharisees, threatened the Pharisees and their power and their position, and so they want to catch him out. They want to trap him in his words. They want him to say something that's going to destroy his credibility, that's going to divide the people, that's going to ruin his popularity, that's maybe even going to get him in trouble with people higher up. The question they bring is about divorce. I don't think they really care about divorce. Uh, I don't think, I think it's just a tool to trap him. A number of times throughout the Gospels, Jewish religious leaders come to trap Jesus and they use different snares. This one is divorce. Their question Verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And the first thing it might be worth noting is the word divorce is not exactly the same as what we mean by divorce, that's very close. When we use the word divorce today, it's a word that means the legal separating of a marriage that usually involves uh, the separating of property, custody arrangements and the legal freedom to then remarry someone else. It's, it's a legal word. When the word divorce is used here, it just means to dismiss, to send away, to be rid of. The question Jesus asked is, is it lawful for a man to dismiss his wife for any every reason? The, the question is about the ending of a marriage, not really the legal processes that surround that. Though, when we get to verse 7, it talks about certificates of divorce. There is something of the, the legal process there. So the question they're asking, Jesus, is, is it okay for a man to end a marriage for any and every reason? Now, how is that a trap question? Surely it's a silly question. Now, unfortunately, it wasn't. In their day, it was a controversial question. There were some rabbis, some teachers, some schools of Jewish thought, teacher and follower, who held to what they thought was, was right was a man could dis dismiss his wife for any and every reason, ranging from adultery right through to she burns my dinner or she's not as attractive as she used to be to me. Then there are other schools of Jewish thought, another rabbi, other set of students or people who follow him, and they held to a more rigorous view, which was no, only in the cases of her committing adultery could divorce um, be appropriate. And so it was a contentious issue. Either way Jesus goes, someone's going to be upset with him, the Jewish religious leaders and their followers. It's a trap, a trap about divorce. So that's where the passage begins. Let's talk about divorce, Jesus. Jesus immediately shifts to marriage. They want to keep asking about divorce. He wants to keep bringing back to marriage. They want to keep talking to him about breaking apart a marriage. He wants to keep talking to them about the inseparable union that marriage is. Have a look at verse 4. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife 
and the two will become one flesh. Jesus says, come back with me right to the beginning, the beginning of creation, the beginning of humanity, the reason that God made us male and female. And he reminds us that right back then, God expressed his original intent and his original instruction around marriage. God made humankind male and female so that they might marry. Male and female so that a man might leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. So that the two will then become one. In the old language, it's leave and cleave. Leave one family unit and so unite to your wife that you create a new family unit where you are one. Marriage is a lifelong union between a man and a woman into which children are born and raised because the commands in Genesis sit within the context of God saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and then he gives the pattern of marriage because that's the context in which children can be born and should be raised. Marriage is a one flesh union which speaks of the intimate connection between a husband and wife including and specifically the sexual union. God's design for sex is for marriage and for marriage alone. Not before marriage, not outside of marriage, not with someone in addition to your spouse, but for your spouse and your spouse alone. It is a key part of what binds us together. It is a key part of the one flesh union. And verse 6, Jesus says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The, the marriage relationship is stronger and more profound than the parent-child bond. <laughs> if you do your job well as a parent, your kids will grow up and eventually leave. Now, some of you are still waiting for that. But leave. But leave to, in many circumstances, marry another. When they marry another, they so unite to that other that that becomes their primary relationship. That becomes their primary allegiance above and beyond you as the parent. There is something deeply profound about the binding of two people together who were separate but who become one flesh in marriage. In Ephesians, Paul sees it as so profound that he can say that... that, um, you should love and care for and look after your spouse because that's loving and caring and looking after yourself. To love and look after them is to love and look after you. You are so intimately bound together, you are one. They are you in some sense. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When you go to Christian weddings or when you go to good Christian weddings, you'll hear these words. And I think it's a moment that should be said with a holy seriousness with a solemn warning, with a tone of solemnity, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. To separate a husband and a wife is a deadly serious and dangerous thing to do. Only death is to separate a husband and wife because God has joined these two together. I think this is the key and central verse here, what God has joined together, let no one separate. If you've been to enough Christian weddings, you'll also hear some words that reflect some of these ideas. I take you. I take you, Megan, to be my wife. I take you, Graham, to be my husband. Now, why are you taking each other? Because you're giving yourself to each other. You are mine. You are mine. 
I belong to you now. I am owned by you. We are no longer two, but we are now one, intimately bound together, bound together by God. And so the vows, Christian vows, are trying to reflect these sort of things. For better, for worse, whether richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Whatever the circumstances we encounter in this life, I will love you, I will serve you, I will cherish you and remain faithful to you and you alone. And if some terrible disaster should befall one of us, I will love you, I will cherish you, I'll be faithful to you, I'll serve you uh, as, until death parts us. That's what marriage is. Lifelong union between a man and a woman into which children are born and raised. Inseparable union, two people coming one. The Pharisees want to talk about separating, divorce. Jesus wants to keep coming back to, no, 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 let's talk about marriage, the inseparable union, adjoining together by God. The Pharisees, however, haven't closed their trap, so they return to divorce. Verse 7. Why then, they asked Jesus, did Moses command that a man must give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They want to show that Jesus' commitment to the inseparable union of marriage clashes with Moses. They want to close the trap on Jesus. Jesus returns to the inseparable nature of marriage. Verse 8. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But I tell you, it was not this way from the beginning. Do you see? notice the difference? The Pharisees say, Moses commanded that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her, her away. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's a concession. It's a permission to people's sinfulness. Moses gave permission. He definitely didn't command it. And it was not this way from the beginning. God's way from the beginning is marriage, inseparable union. But because of the sinfulness of human beings, marriages will break down, they will fall apart, there will be divorce, but it's not what was intended. But when it does happen, Moses in the law provided for the woman a necessary certificate of divorce. Otherwise, she couldn't prove that she wasn't still married. But with the certificate of divorce, she could prove that she was no longer married and under certain circumstances that meant she could remarry. And in the ancient world, that really mattered because otherwise she would be without the support of a husband. This is a retrieval ethic. It's not the way it's meant to be, divorce. But when it does go this way because of human sinfulness, what's the next best thing to do? Well, in the Old Testament, when it did happen, it was appropriate that a certificate of divorce was given to protect the woman the defenceless one, and to regulate how these tragic circumstances were handled in that society. But Jesus is very clear. The certificate of divorce given by Moses was a concession, a permission in the face of human sinfulness when divorce did occur. But God's intent, his desire for marriage, is that divorce never occur. Marriage is designed to be a lifelong, inseparable union. Now you probably know verse 9. There's an exception, isn't there? I tell you that anyone divorces his wife, Jesus said, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. There is a circumstance where divorce is a possibility and does hold the possibility of remarriage. Here, 1 Corinthians 7. But otherwise, to divorce and to marry, remarry, is to commit adultery. So there'd be some in Jesus' day who thought, oh, it's okay to dismiss your wife for any and every reason. 
And so she's displeasing, get rid of her, marry someone else, start having sex with them. Jesus says, no, that's adultery. That's the sin of having sex with someone who is not your spouse. Because in God's eyes, you are still married to your original spouse. And now you're having sex with someone else. The marriage is inseparable. In God's eyes, there's no difference between a man having sex with another woman behind his wife's back and formally divorcing his wife before he marries a woman and starts having sex with her. Both are adultery, says Jesus. That is apart from one case where it is possible to divorce your spouse, according to Jesus. And that one case, he says, is in the case of sexual immorality. And the word sexual immorality there is a broad term that that captures all sorts of sexual immorality. In the context, though, most directly referring to, I think, adultery. Adultery is the one circumstance where it is possible to divorce your spouse and to not have sinned. Now, you notice I would have said possible probably four or five times. It's not that when adultery has been committed in marriage, divorce must follow. Rather, it becomes permissible. Because what's also possible is an incredible act of forgiveness on behalf of the wronged spouse that can lead to repentance on behalf of the one who has committed adultery and can actually lead to reconciliation. Incredibly painful, incredibly costly and an incredible picture of God's grace to us. And I've seen it happen many times in my Christian life. When the victim of adultery forgives their spouse and their spouse repents and reconciliation is made possible and the relationship is restored. But it does make sense that this is the one circumstance where a divorce is permitted by Jesus because remember sex is so integral to the one flesh union of husband and wife. Trust, faithfulness, vulnerability with each other is a key part of that union. And so to betray your spouse at that very core place, that that very one fleshness of the union is to do damage to trust and faithfulness and vulnerability there. Adultery is something to, to flee. It can be so destructive. But can I say again, I know a number of Christian people who have had their spouse commit adultery but have gone on to show incredible forgiveness And the adulterous spouse has repented and the marriage has been restored. Not without scars. Not without difficulty to trust. Not without great pain absorbed by the spouse who was sinned against. Often not without damage to the children. Adultery is an incredibly damaging thing. But there is the possibility of forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation when there's true repentance. But reconciliation is not always possible usually in the circumstance where the adulterous spouse will not repent. And where there is not repentance by the adulterous spouse, reconciliation becomes impossible and divorce is appropriate. I think it's interesting that this passage about marriage and divorce sits in the context of Jesus' teaching about the seriousness of sin on one hand and forgiveness on the other. Just both essential things in this relational world. Jesus here affirms what God says about marriage, that it is an inseparable union and only the most destructive circumstance of adultery can there even be the possibility of divorce without sin. Do you hear Jesus' major point? Marriage is for life. All divorce is a terrible departure from God's good intention. But do you hear his minor point? 
in the case of marriage being torn apart by sexual immorality, there can be an exception to his major point. But his major point is still his major point. So, can separation ever be a good thing for a marriage? This is wisdom, but in wisdom, we have no command here, but in wisdom, I think there are times where a temporary separation in marriage can be a good thing. There are times when a temporary separation in marriage can be appropriate, helpful, and I think sometimes even essential. But the reasons matter. When a marriage is in society enter into a temporary separation, it's usually because they're heading towards divorce. That's what they're wanting. But when a Christian enters into a separation, it's rather with a desire to do all possible from my end to work towards reconciliation and bringing things back together. So, so why temporarily separate? A few reasons. One is safety. If you or your children fear for your safety, can I say it's essential to get help immediately? It's essential to remove yourself from the dangerous situation immediately or get help for someone to help you get out of the dangerous situation. Um, separation for a time is essential in these circumstances until the dangerous situation is resolved one way or another. Another reason I think a temporary separation can be wise is it can help an unrepentant spouse see their need to repent. I heard he touched on this last week. There are some circumstances where one of the spouses is sinning so greatly it's destroying the marriage but they won't um, own up to it or they don't understand the seriousness of it. To, to step away, to separate temporarily shows them the sin is serious, you need to repent unless you repent, uh, we can't be reconciled and have, have the marriage that we need to have. A, a, a third possibility of temporary separation um, is to give space to give space to restore the marriage, to give space to both of you to start working through things, thinking through things, uh, seeing a counsellor, repenting of the things that need to be repented of, to start to change in appropriate ways, but the goal is to come back together as soon as possible to make the marriage work. When the underlying motivation is, I'm getting out, this is a stepping stone, that's where it'll end. But when the underlying motivation is the Christian motivation of reconciliation, if at all possible, A short-term separation can sometimes, not always but sometimes, be something that helpfully brings the appropriate repentance and change and forgiveness and reconciliation. And if safety is a factor, factor is essential. Here are king on these subjects. Marriage, sex, divorce. Who will be your king here? Happiness or the Lord Jesus? Well, Jesus turns now and our glorious king speaks about singleness and sex. See there verse 10? The disciples hear what Jesus says about marriage and they basically say to Jesus, Jesus, if the bar on marriage is that high, surely it's better not to marry. If, if that's God's expectation, an inseparable union that is lifelong no matter what, barring the extreme circumstance of extreme unrepentant sin by one spouse, then surely it's better not to marry because that sounds hard to pull off. Jesus' response, verse 11. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. There are eunuchs who are born that way. There are eunuchs that have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. See, the disciples say to Jesus, if the bar on marriage is that high, 
then surely a single and celibate life is better, easier. And I think in verse 11 what Jesus says is, yes, but not everyone can accept it because not everyone has been given that life. Yes, I think Jesus says, it's better for some to be single and celibate, but not everyone can embrace a single and celibate life because they've not been given the circumstances of singleness by God. Some have been given the circumstance of marriage. And if you've been placed in that circumstance, it's not appropriate to embrace celibacy. But for those who have been given singleness by God, it is appropriate for them to embrace the single and celibate life. And then in verse 12, Jesus uses the image of the eunuch as a picture of celibacy. And he gives three categories of eunuch to illustrate three ways in which God might have given the gift of singleness and celibacy to people. So there's the first. There are those who have been born eunuchs. So some defect of birth, uh, deformed genitals, in some way from birth, unable to have sex. Second category. There are those who have been made eunuchs by others. So men who have been castrated, either as punishment or so they can be slaves. Now it's often the case that if a ruler had a harem, he wanted to protect his harem from sexual interference from men, but he needed men to guard his harem and be servants in his harem. And so the solution, the barbaric, cutting off the man's um, genitals, castrating the man, well, part of the genitals, castrating the man, oh, I won't go into too much detail. <laughs> Trapped in it now. <laughs> How do I back out? <laughs> um, so they can look after the harem and there's no threat of sexual interference. Third category, there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There are people who are not physical eunuchs, but they choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now that is, there are Christians who have given up sex and marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, there are some who won't marry and so will remain celibate either permanently or for a time, and they do it out of faithfulness to Jesus and for his kingdom. Now, there might be a few categories here. This might be the person who chooses deliberately for a lifetime to be single and celibate, that is, never have sex, so that they might give their life in undivided service to Jesus and his kingdom. Now, can I say the church over the centuries has been deeply blessed by people who have chosen that path. This might also be the person, I think, who has not chosen to be single but finds themselves unmarried. And so to be faithful to Jesus, they live a celibate life, not having sex, and live in undivided service to Jesus and his kingdom. This might be the person who is divorced. They know they bear guilt in the divorce, that, that that remarriage is not an appropriate option for them. And so to remain faithful to Jesus, they now remain unmarried, and, and celibate and live in undivided service of Jesus and his kingdom. This could be the person who experiences same-sex attraction. And so to be faithful to Jesus and his kingdom chooses to remain unmarried and celibate and lives in undivided service of Jesus. This might be the person who is widowed, but who through lack of choice or uh, through either choice or lack of opportunity remains unmarried And so to be faithful to Jesus, remain celibate for the rest of their lives and lives in undivided service to Jesus and his kingdom. People who live like eunuchs, celibate, for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. And verse 10, Jesus says, The one 
who can accept it, the one who is in these circumstances, should accept it. There are people who have been given the gift of celibate singleness by God, either through the circumstances of birth, through the interference of human beings, or through choice. And Jesus says, the person who has been granted by God this gift of singleness should accept this celibate life and live into devotion to Jesus. Um, In our society, is there anything more taboo than to say that? These days, singleness is not as big a thing as it used to be. But telling someone that they cannot have sex, (laughs) encouraging someone to be celibate, there is no more horrific idea to many. When I was doing scripture in um, high schools many years ago in youth ministry, as young boys came near to wanting to become a Christian, their biggest question was, can I have sex if I'm a Christian? By which they meant, can I have sex with whoever and whenever I want if I become a Christian? Greatest concern, top shelf priority for a young man, and probably not just young men. Um, Jesus tells us there are appropriate circumstances to remain celibate and that's if you're single because marriage is not ultimate. Uh, Sexual intimacy is not ultimate. The ultimate thing is knowing Jesus and knowing him for all eternity. For some, God has given the gift of the married life and sexual intimacy comes with that. For others, God has given the gift of an unmarried life um, without the sexual intimacy. It may be for a time or it may be for a whole life. But for all Christians, God has given the ultimate thing. And the ultimate thing is to know him now and for all eternity. That's the big thing. See, the disciples say to Jesus, Whoa, God's bar on marriage is so high, I don't think we can pull that off. And Jesus says, yeah, you know what? God's bar on being not married is really high. God's bar on singleness is high. Whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're divorced, whether you're widowed, Jesus is to be your king in all things. And it will affect your life deeply and personally and for the long term. Do you see how this passage is about something far bigger than even marriage, divorce, singleness and sex? It's about, will you let King Jesus affect the very deepest and most core and personal parts of your life in ways that will affect your life for a long, long time, perhaps even for the entirety of your life. So there's nothing more precious to human beings than our relationships and our sex lives. Don't touch those, society says. Can Jesus really rule over this area of our life? Can Jesus really call certain people to celibacy, to not have sex? The single, the widowed who are not remarried, the divorced person whose circumstances mean it's not appropriate to remarry. Can Jesus really call people to marital faithfulness? To have sex with one woman and one woman only for the entirety of my life? Can Jesus really call people to live faithfully and lovingly in a marriage which is unhappy? In a marriage where my spouse is deeply sick and requires constant care? is profoundly disabled and a shell of the person they used to be, suffers deep depression, their personality is altered. These are long obediences that impact sometimes the rest of our lives in the deepest and most core areas of our life, relationships, sex life. Will we have Jesus as our king here? Or will we say, no, happiness is going to be my king? See, what sort of world do you want to live in? A world where the king is happiness 
or a world where Jesus is our king? In a world where the king is happiness, let me try to paint a little picture, and it won't be as vivid as I wish I could make it, but a a picture of what it means if happiness is the thing that rules our world and rules our society. The chief motivation of individuals increasingly of our society becomes happiness. And so we become a world where more and more our decisions about me and whether I'm happy, and so they become self-focused and selfish which starts to cause fragmentation and disunity and breaking apart of relationships because what makes me happy is not always good for you and the more I pursue what makes me happy will always be at the expense of others. This way of life tends to erode the ability to delay gratification, to restrain myself from having happiness now because there are greater things that will come in the future. It tends to erode and destroy values like duty, honour, sacrifice, service, giving, love, anything that requires me to deprive myself for what's right or for what's good for others. Love tends to to shift definition and it moves away from sacrificial service of others to am I feeling in love in my romantic relationships? Love tends to shift away from I love you no matter what to I love you until I don't. Marriage is by many resisted because it seems like it's going to lock me into a situation where in the future I might not be happy. Ah. Marriage by others is entered into but with the thought in the back of their mind thinking I'm in until I'm out. I'm in until I stop being happy. In this world marriages fragment and break apart and children grow up in circumstances without stability and society is damaged and depression and anxiety reach heights previously unknown and men trade in their younger wives for their old their wives for a younger model um, as they get older deep hurt and loneliness enters people's lives and often anger unforgiveness resentment bitterness division and hate and the reality is that the pursuit of happiness actually leads down a trail where there is no happiness at the end. Definitely later, often sooner. The world's way actually buys us selfishness, separation, disunity, broken relationships and the cost that follows with that. But the king of our world is the Lord Jesus and his world is a way which is about together. It's chiefly motivated by love and self-giving and sacrifice. Increasingly becomes a world where people are not out for themselves but they're out for what's right and for the good of others. Where people serve and they give their time, their energy, their money, where do people prive themselves of happiness for what's right and what's good for others. Where decisions are less and less about me and more and more other-focused and selfless. Where increasingly we gather together, different people, in unity and inseparability because people bear with each other and forgive one another, and care for one another, just as Christ has done for them. And this way leads to delayed gratification, because we know that there are bigger and more important and right things in the future, and so I delay my happiness now. And it values duty and honour and sacrifice, and deprivation and service for the good of others. And love is, I love you no matter what. I am committed to you no matter what. And marriage is embraced, and celebrated, and committed to for life. And children grow up in stability and the stability of society is strengthened with all that flows from that. And men commit to love and enjoy and cherish their wives from when they're really young to they're old and shriveled up. And they'll be old and shriveled up too.
And the reality is, letting go of the pursuit of happiness in order to follow King Jesus with all its associated deprivations is actually a trail that leads to deep and lasting joy. Definitely later, often sooner. Do you see the difference of God's way together? Inseparability, unity, love, other-centeredness. Church is what God is doing with the world. He is creating a world that is together and marriage is to be the picture of that which stands in contrast to the world's way of doing things. Who will be your king? Your happiness or the Lord Jesus? Let me give us some pastoral implications for each of us. To the married. Marriage is a joining together by God and what God has joined together must not be separated lifelong. And so the application, do everything and anything you need to do to protect your marriage from harm. Whatever it is, from the beginning of your marriage, lock in your mind, there's no plan B. I'm married to this person. Even if a minute afterwards you're like, oh, (laughs) no taking it back. The mindset needs to be, there is no backup. This is for life. We've got to make it work. Communicate. And the men think, oh, anything but communicate. Communicate. Go to counselling if it needs counselling. Have someone help you communicate through these things. Tackle addiction. Drink, drugs, pornography, gambling, deeply destructive habits that destroy relationships. Drop a friendship if it's getting in the way of a healthy marriage, however that may look. Keep safe emotional distance from all members of the opposite sex. I only have one spouse Every other lady is not my spouse. I need to treat them significantly differently than the way I treat my spouse. The level of emotional intimacy I have with other women will be significantly different than the emotional intimacy that I am to have with my spouse. We need to watch it like a hawk. If your job is destroying your marriage, you're away so often, it's creating temptation, whatever the reason, it's worth letting go your job for your marriage. Change your priorities. Grow in holiness. You're not yet married and you hope to be? Then make sure you know what marriage is and you get into it knowing there is no plan B. If I marry this person, it's for the rest of my life. There's no backup plan. I'm making vows that bind me for the rest of my life. Make sure you're ready and willing to make those vows. And try to marry well because it's the rest of your life. Look for someone who looks like Jesus. Look for someone who loves and cares for and protects and, and, and deprives themselves for the good of others. That's the person you want to marry because how are they going to treat you if they treat others like that? And how are you, you're going to both grow in holiness if that's the person you spend your life with. You could marry anyone who is a Christian if you're a Christian, but boy, you could make your married life pretty hard. So I encourage you, pick wisely. And once you've done it, you're in and you're in for life. To the divorced. Marriage is a joining together by God, glued together by God, lifelong not to be unjoined. But sin has damaged and messes up our world and our relationships. And so divorce is a reality. And so now if you're divorced, you're thinking, okay, what is the best thing to do in a broken situation that I might honour the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm very conscious this morning, if you are divorced, uh, this is no doubt raw 
painful, uncomfortable. Jesus knows your need. He knows where you're at. He knows your life. He loves you. You can see in what the Lord Jesus has done. He brings these words not to crush you down, but because we all need to hear these things. For some of you, the divorce is in no way you're doing. You wish it hadn't turned out like this, but it has. I pray that God would comfort you, that he'd heal your grief, that you'd know his faithfulness where others have been unfaithful, that he would give you strength to forgive to the measure that's appropriate and that you would seek reconciliation as far as it depends on you. And if possible, it may be appropriate for you to remarry. For some of you, you know that you were the cause of your divorce. You blew it. I pray that you would turn to God in repentance if you haven't done so already that you would know his complete and total forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ that we all need for the way that we have lived, that you would seek reconciliation as far as it depends on you and that from this point forward your life would be one of repentance and a key way to show your life of repentance is not to remarry. For some of you, the whole thing's messy. (laughs) It was me, it was them. I pray that you'd know God's forgiveness where needed, that you'd repent where needed, that you experience healing and change and the love and faithfulness of God and growth, that you would pursue reconciliation as far as it depends on you. And depending on the circumstances, God's forgiveness of you may or may not mean you're free to remarry, depending on the circumstance. But for all divorced, can I encourage you to seek reconciliation with your former spouse so that marriages might be restored. Unfortunately, for various reasons, it may not be possible but seek it. And one reason that may not be possible is because you or they have married again. If you have married again, then be faithful to your new spouse till death do you part. Can I remind you, Jesus here in, in verse 1, he's on his way to the cross. He's going there to die for our sin so that we might be forgiven. Uh, We all come together here at the foot of the cross, the only perfect man who died under the judgment of God so that we might be forgiven. To the single. Singleness is, in some measure, living in a deprived state. It's living deprived of one of God's blessings, marriage, the relationship, the sexual intimacy. But can I say again, there's something bigger than marriage and sex. That is a relationship with God. Marriage is not the ultimate thing. Sex is not the ultimate thing. Relationship with God is the ultimate thing. We can know a more wonderful intimacy with him for all eternity. And singleness, according to Paul, can be better if you want to serve the kingdom of heaven because there's not the distractions. There's not the divided focus. You can far more easily devote yourself fully to the work of the Lord. So whether you have chosen singleness or you find yourself in that circumstance that God has currently given you, then the way to use your life is be faithful as a celibate person, giving yourself in service to the Jesus kingdom. Marriage is wonderful, but there's no marriage in heaven. Marriage won't last forever. What does last forever is the work we do for the kingdom now in this life. And there's a greater marriage that is to come. Who will be your king? Your happiness? The Lord Jesus. Would you let Jesus be the king of your deepest, most personal areas of your life that are obediences over the long term, in fact, even over a lifetime? Do you know Jesus did? 
He lived as a voluntary eunuch for the sake of the kingdom, never having married, never having sex, in fact, living a life of poverty and suffering and rejection and eventually willingly giving himself over to torture and sacrificial death. Here is the person dedicated to God and the kingdom of heaven. Is Jesus your king? You might have heard there's a virus going around. It's called sin. And it's in the heart of every human being. It has a 100% infection rate. From birth, every one of us uh, enters into the rebellious human race and participates with sin so that we are rebels towards God. And because of that, it's a 100% mortality rate. Everyone dies. Everyone dies. And not just physically, but they enter into an eternity of suffering as the just judgment. Strange thing about this virus is it takes a long time. It lasts, gives you 70, 80, 90 years to kill you. Kills you slowly, kills you with lots of symptoms and lots of suffering over that time, but it eventually kills you and then casts you into an eternity of eternal suffering. So it doesn't really matter how great that 70, 80, 90 years, how much you suffer from the symptoms, how mild the symptoms are, there is an eternity of unhappiness awaiting. But if you would make Jesus your king again, he's the cure. He's the one who can forgive. He's the one who can save you from that eternity and bring you into his kingdom of of joy for all eternity. That's why he came and lived like a eunuch for us. These are not trivial things, how you'll respond to Jesus in these areas. Because they're representative of how you respond to Jesus with your life. And it's only if you will have Jesus your king that you have the cure to the disease of sin and you escape the eternal suffering. And it's only possible because he has won that forgiveness by dying for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is that king. He is the suffering servant king, the one who would deprive himself um, of marriage, of sex, of, of wealth, of riches, of popularity, of all manner of things that he would suffer and die so that we might be saved, uh, forgiven. Please help us to live day by day with the Lord Jesus as our King. Help us to do that in these very deep and personal areas of our lives, Lord. Uh, Our relationships, uh, the way we live and and view our sex life. Uh, Father, help us to honour the Lord Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.